It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Kriya Yoga Podcast. In this episode, I'm sharing a talk from my Kriya Yoga teacher, Roy Eugene Davis. This talk was given in 2018, right as we began the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program. Mr. Davis spoke to our group as we attended CSA. In the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program, while the majority of the sessions are all online, um, when possible, at the end of every year, participants gather at CSA for an in-person week-long retreat. And so again, uh, this is Mr. Davis speaking to the participants at that retreat. Uh, the next few months or so, um, maybe even sooner than that, uh, I do also plan on sharing some interviews I had done with Mr. Davis. I was able to do two interviews um, between, I think, 2014 and 2016. So I'm also going to be uploading those to the podcast. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this talk, and I hope you learn what you need to for your awakening journey as it is now. Just sit upright and be as comfortable as you can be in your chair where you're sitting. Head up. And uh, let your body relax and uh, put your attention up into the space between your eyebrows. And the reason for this is it helps to Focus attention in the front parts of the brain, which are associated with concentration and creativity and impulse control and decisiveness. And uh, this region is referred to in yogic literature as a spiritual eye center. But uh, you don't have to try to see anything there, but put your attention there. And doing that will also elevate your attention from subconscious influences, from mental activities, and certainly withdraw it from external conditions. Put your awareness in the spine. Feel the length of your spine from the base of the skull down to the bottom of your spine. Feel the base of your spine and mentally say OM and imagine and feel a quickening, a vibration there at the base of the spine. OM. And then come up to the sacrum, the small of the back, OM. In lumbar region and the spine opposite the navel, OM. Feel it there. Then up between the shoulder blades, the dorsal region, OM. Then neck opposite the throat, OM. Then up into the forehead, OM. 
and higher brain om now observe your breathing let your breathing occur naturally and for a minute or two <clears throat> be aware of the air coming in through the entrance of the nostrils Put your attention there so that you feel the air coming in at the entrance of the nostrils. <clears throat> and naturally there's a, a moisture there in the uh, inner lining of the nostrils. So when you inhale evenly through both nostrils, you feel a cool sensation and then the air is warmed in your lungs, and when you exhale, it is warm. So you feel that cool sensation at the entrance of the nostrils when you breathe in through both nostrils simultaneously. And the warmth going out. During the course of an average day, you breathe more than 21,000 times. So breathing is effortless and natural. So in the early stages of sitting to meditate, it can be helpful just to observe the breathing. And doing that helps to keep your attention removed from secular matters and from emotions and thoughts and memories and so on. It gives you something to be aware of in the moment. And as you progress, then, disregard the sensation of air coming in and out through the entrance of the nostrils and go up a little higher in the nasal passage up toward the sinuses in the forehead and feel air moving there as you inhale. And this can also help you to be more aware in the front part of the brain or in the forehead between the eyebrows. Feeling the air flow in with a cool sensation up in that upper chamber of the nasal passage. Then after a while, you can disregard the sensation of air moving and just be aware of breathing. Again, with your attention focused up there in the front part of the brain. Just let the breathing occur naturally. And as you progress, notice that as uh, you become more relaxed. There will be occasions of temporary pause after inhalation and after exhalation, just momentary. And during those moments of pause, notice that streams of thoughts are tend to, st to stop and that you are in present-time awareness without the intrusion of thoughts. 
Don't try to suppress your thinking. Don't struggle with thoughts that arise. Just watch your breath. Watch your breathing, and during those occasions of temporary pause, after inhalation and after exhalation, notice that you can be temporarily thought-free. It's important to remember that the purpose of meditation is to calm the mind and emotions and to have attention removed from the changes that occur in mind and awareness. And these changes are usually empowered or driven by impulses that arise from deeper levels of being that activate thoughts and moods. But when uh, the mind becomes calm and even the impulses that activate mental activities are pacified or stilled, then your awareness can be clear. then you can experience what is called superconsciousness, a state of clear awareness other than ordinary states which are modified or conditioned with thoughts and fluctuations and movements and memories and so on. The word super means above or beyond, superior to. So it is sometimes referred to as, as the fourth state of consciousness, other than unconsciousness, subconsciousness, and ordinary conscious awareness, a more transcendent state of awareness. Your awareness is very clear. There may be thoughts in the background, but uh, they are not invasive or troublesome. And eventually even they settle down. So the idea when experiencing the early stages of meditation is to observe breathing and then observe the settling of emotions and thoughts and notice the clarity of awareness that naturally occurs.
Now, before concluding, turn your attention to the more than 7 billion people on the planet. We radiate goodwill to everyone, everywhere, without exception. We wish for their highest good. Their highest good will include their total well-being, their health and happiness, and harmonious relationships and environmental conditions, and above all, enhanced spiritual awareness. So wish this for everyone. We do this compassionately with goodwill. And if you want to imagine the purity of your essence of being, blending with the collective consciousness of the planet, that can be helpful in visualizing. And imagine the purity of your essence blending with the collective consciousness and beneficially influencing everyone and everything. So as you do this, it is a reminder that your spiritual enlightenment is beneficial for everyone. Our consciousness is part of a collective or group or one consciousness. So when we are enlightened, then <clears throat> our enlightenment somehow makes the collective consciousness a little brighter, a little more pure, a little clearer, more clear. So let's chat on. Peace, heart. This morning I want to talk for a while about the direct way to uh, nurture a spiritual awakening. So-called spiritual growth is really an awakening process, and really our improved understanding is the result of self-revelation and unveiling and coming forth, or at least revealing, making available to us the knowledge that is already innate to us about our true nature and ultimate reality and our relationship to it. So it's important to remember that uh, we are, as spiritual beings, units of the pure essence of ultimate reality. And therefore, what is true of it must be true of us, and then, therefore, its purity and wholeness and serenity and innate knowledge of itself we must have within ourselves. And this is what self-realization is all about. The word self is used with an uppercase S to uh, indicate our essence, our true nature, our true self-identity, uh, in contrast to what Western psychologists refer to as ego, 
or the small sense, confined sense of self-identity. The word ego is uh, from German, das uh, Dicht, which means the I, the I, the sense of I-ness. And uh, unless we are self-knowing, self-realized, usually when we think of I, we think of this personality-oriented, uh, mistaken sense of self-identity. This is what I am. But uh, a little bit, of, little bit of reflection uh, reveals uh, intuitively, and perhaps through discernment, intellectual discernment, that we are the observer. We observe our thoughts and our our emotions and our personality characteristics, and even this small sense of I exist. We observe that. So we are other than what we observe. So we are the witness, the observer, changeless being. And this can, when this is consciously experienced, then we say it is realized. Before that, it is known about, and it's good to know about it. But uh, when we experience it as being true, then this is realization. Realization is experience along with knowledge of something. So self-realization is experience along with knowledge of our true nature just as God-realization would be experienced along with knowledge of that ultimate reality as it is, not as we imagine it to be or formally imagine it to be or what others say, say it is, but as it is. So there is an ultimate reality, one reality, which exists. And uh, in Western, in Western uh, culture, we refer to it as God, the word God, however, the word itself, not God, but that which is called God, but the word God is only about 2,000 years old. Uh, it was um, uh, coined or originated by uh, a man, a bishop, who translated the New Testament into uh, Old German dialect and came up with a word combined from German and Dutch, that later was changed to the word God. But uh, so when we use the word God, we usually think of an ultimate reality. But it's well to understand what that reality is. It's not a person, but it's uh, has two aspects. One aspect is absolute or pure. And uh, without characteristics or at, and or attributes, it just is. It is just pure existence, pure being, has always been and always will be what it is. But there is an aspect of it, of that reality, which has characteristics, energetic influences, and in Sanskrit they are called gunas, which mean threads, and. Uh, these uh, vibrations, really threads of vibrations, and produce universes. So there, there is the in ultimate reality. There is the pure, changeless, pure existence, attribute uh, without attributes or characteristics. And there is the aspect with characteristics, which makes possible manifestation of universes and their their functions and operations. So we can know what that reality is 
by direct experience. We can somewhat intellectually examine and perhaps get a handle on it, but not completely. And by in, with intuition, we, have, we can have more insight, but then when we experience it, then that is realization. But for the first, uh, first step is self-realization, experience and knowledge of uh, what we are as uh, a unit of pure consciousness. And uh, earlier when we were meditating, I mentioned that the purpose of meditation is to calm the mind and the emotions and to clarify awareness so that what is true of us can be self-evident or self-revealed. It is apprehended and experienced. And we find this mentioned in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, uh, which is the basic text on Kriya Yoga practice. In the second sutra of the first chapter, Yoga, Chitta, Vritti, Nirodha. You don't have to learn Sanskrit, but it's well to remember that second sutra. Yoga is really the result of the naroda, or the turning back and quieting of the vrittis, the fluctuations and movements in mind and awareness. And that uh, chitta is the field of awareness in, in, in which there, there, there is mind, sense of I-ness or ego, ego awareness, uh, intellect, and ourselves as the observer. But when the waves of the mind or the wave-like movements in mind and awareness are stopped and we remain conscious, then our awareness is clear and we have an opportunity to experience our true nature as it is. So the sutra following the second one, the third sutra, simply simply is, was written, then the seer, the observer, the experiencer abides in itself. That is, when you get the debris out of the way and the mind is clear and the emotions are settled and awareness is clear, there is only self-awareness, self-knowing, self-experience. And then the next sutra, otherwise, attention and awareness uh, are inclined to again identify with external conditions. So we've all experienced that. Perhaps we meditate, we experience a degree of peacefulness and serenity, and then we come out of meditation, and before long we're involved again in our thoughts and our emotions and the stuff that's coming down around us and the news that we, that we are, are exposed to in, through the media and so forth, and maybe then even become forgetful of our true nature, Perhaps we had a glimpse of it or a perception of it when we were meditating or at other times when we were still. But then when our attention was directed outward, we forgot and became involved out there once again. Of course, the idea is to get to the place where we are so self-knowing, so self-aware with an uppercase S, so self-realized, that even after meditation or when we're not contemplating higher realities, we are always inwardly aware of what we are as an observer, as a being of pure consciousness, even when we are relating to our small sense of self-identity and to our expressing through our senses and interacting with others and attending to our duties and uh, 
of fulfilling our purposes, we're inside we're always poised in self-awareness, self-knowing. That's the ideal, to get to the place. It's one thing to meditate, to get to the stage of what we call superconsciousness or transcendence, where we are, our attention is removed from mundane con- concerns and conditions, and we just abide in that awareness of being, and it's so pleasant and satisfying and fulfilling. That's one thing, and it's useful. But it's important to progress beyond that and get to the place where we're always and really aware of our true nature when we are not meditating. So we don't have to be reclusive or off in a monastery or hidden off in the cave someplace in the woods uh, to be successful on, on our spiritual awakening path. But we have to understand that contemplation and inner peacefulness as a result of disconnecting for a while from out external conditions, that is useful and beneficial, but we can't sit there forever in that internalized condition. We've got to come out and relate to the environment and fulfill our purposes in life. And so we want to be able to do that with full awareness of what we are and what we are about and why we do what we do and so on. And that is possible. That is called the superior state of realization when you are always self-knowing, self-realized, regardless of what you are doing, not just when you are internalized and your attention is pulled back and away from from um, outside conditions that are possibly distracting what uh, pre- what prevents our natural awakening to self-realization? Well, obviously, one thing that prevents us is, if we're not on that awakening path, is disinterest. Many people are just not interested in being spiritually awake. In fact, they don't even understand what you're talking about when you point in that direction. But uh, so they're not interested. Uh, even the people who are not interested in spiritual awakening and learning about higher realities eventually will be because their innate urge is to be awake. And they may not be conscious of it yet, but eventually it will become influential. Um, another uh, another uh, uh, problem, a barrier really to to uh, spiritual awakening is not knowing what to do to nurture our spiritual awakening, not knowing how to go about it. Another barrier or obstacle is knowing what to do but not doing it. That's common, isn't it? Oh, I know what I should do, but I don't always do it. And then uh, there are other conditions, too, that interfere, even if we are rightly resolved and highly motivated and doing our best to eat right and think right and meditate right and do everything right, as we know we should do, uh, or at least think we should do, still there may be some problems that we have to, we have to confront and overcome. So in the second chapter of uh, Patanjali Yoga Sutra, Kriya Yoga uh, practice is recommended and is first defined in the, the, the first uh, sutra, 
as uh, austerity or disciplined thinking and behavior or uh, actions, self-study, which means self-inquiry, what am I, using uh, discrimination and meditation. Discrimination to discern the difference between what we are and what we are not, that's helpful, but also to meditate, to have actual experience of our true nature. And then, rising above, seeing through this mistaken or so-called illusional sense of self-identity, waking up from this idea that we are this small unit of confined awareness and uh, realizing what our relationship to a larger reality is. Uh, these procedures are, are, are referred to together as Kriya Yoga practice. Now, the word Kriya is Sanskrit, and it simply means action or procedure or process. And yoga, uh, in the Yoga Sutras, is used to, uh, as a synonym for samadhi, which is another Sanskrit word, and they both mean pretty much the same thing. The word samadhi, you can go to the prefix sam, means together. So yoga means unification. So both yoga and samadhi refer to unification of attention and awareness with, with our essence of being, or self-realization. So this is uh, potentially mentioned in the Yoga Sutra. These practices can result in self-realization. But in the second sutra of the second chapter, after defining Kriya Yoga practice, then Patanjali wrote, Kriya Yoga uh, is practiced to remove, uh, use the word which we translate into modern language as afflictions, and for the cultivation of the samadhi or oneness of self-realization. And the afflictions are simply enumerated later on in that chapter as there could be psychological conflicts, could be anxiety, guilt, uh, uh, poor self-image, doubt, uh, uh, trauma of some kind, um, uh, unwillingness to learn, uh, un- uh, inability to learn, or to comprehend what is pre- what is presented to one, um, addictions, attachments of various kinds. You know how the how it is with the human condition. There can be a, a variety of troublesome conditions that interfere with self-awareness and clarity of awareness and happiness and freedom. And uh, <clears throat> so Kriya Yoga is practiced to remove them. That is, uh, some, of these, some of these conditions can be renounced or gotten rid of uh, very quickly by seeing the futility of having them and the non-usefulness of having them. For instance, we can renounce uh, uh, guilt and uh, regret and uh, envy and uh, jealousy and uh, egotism and an inflated sense of self-importance. We can renounce all of that stuff by just seeing how foolish it is to hold on to it. And uh, no, one, no one is making us hold on to it. We hang, we're holding on to it ourselves. We choose to hold on to it. 
So you say, well, I don't want that anymore. You just let it go. You don't have to struggle to overcome. You don't have to uh, spend weeks and months in recovery uh, in various therapies, using various therapies. All you have to do is just dump it, get rid of it. You don't need it. And some will say, oh, that's just easier said than done. Well, that's because they don't want to do it. They just want to hold on to it for some reason or another. So a lot of the stuff that's troublesome, we can just let go of it. Just let it go. And uh, that's, a, that's a positive step in the, in the right direction. And we have some habits that are debilitating such as procrastination, not doing what we know we should do on time and in the right way. We can let that go. We can stop procrastinating. And uh, if we tend to run ourselves down mentally or verbally with self-talk or verbal conversation and diminish ourselves and say, say, I'm no good, I'm helpless, and I made a lot of mistakes, and no one loves me, and God doesn't love me, and and uh, so forth. Stop that talk. Stop that self-mental talk and stop that certainly audible talk. Don't ever say anything like that. You might say it once to your counselor or your mentor or your advisor to help to get straight, your head straightened out. But after that, don't, don't talk about that stuff. It's negative affirmation. And so negative affirmation is influential just as positive affirmation is. An affirmation is a declaration of something that is true or you consider to be true or you want to be true. So if you affirm all these things about yourself that you don't want to be true, you're simply putting that more deeply into your subconscious as a form of self-indulgence and self-punishment sometimes and self-limitation. So we don't need to do that. So there's a lot we can do to help ourselves live more efficiently and productively just by having the right intentions and following through. And Patanjali mentioned in the Yoga Sutra that progress in spiritual awakening is in relationship to the intensiveness of practice, not the intensity, but the intensiveness or the concentrated endeavor concentrated right endeavor or focus if we stay focused and on, on what it is we're, <clears throat> we're, we, intend, we intend to do and will do just stay focused on that and go forward with that then we can have a satisfactory progress uh, in, in, in awakening to self-knowing or self-realization and then uh, <clears throat> In the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali mentions a variety of things that can be done for people who want to meditate effectively to uh, concentrate and to clarify awareness. And uh, so uh, contemplation of Om uh, is is recommended as a meditation, as a form of meditation. Patanjali uh, wrote in the first (coughs) chapter, that there is this, we call it in Western Western metaphysical terminology, we call it the oversoul or the cosmic soul. But how you refer, use the Sanskrit word isfara, meaning the ruler or regulator of the, of the cosmos. Uh, its existence is indicated 
or really uh, proven by the fact that there is a vibration of Om. He calls it Om. It's the vibration of the power of consciousness pervading the universe out of which the universes were were manifested. And uh, but it has an origin and. it's the existence of it indicates it's an origin. So Patanjali says, go meditate on that and its significance. What is this cosmic vibration, this cosmic sound that's everywhere present? Well, it has an origin. What is its origin? First, identify with that sound vibration or imagine that you do, and then contemplate its significance, its origin, and want to know it and then that will get you to the stage of contemplation of the, of the expressive uh, uh, aspect of ultimate reality with characteristics and go beyond that and to the absolute or the pure stage of, uh, or aspect of ultimate reality, which is the experience of transcendence, what yogis call kaivalya, the great aloneness, and uh, now some people, when they're, first, when they're first meditating and they hear about this as an aim or a possible, possible experience or realization, get a little nervous. Well, what if I experience transcendence and don't come back? Well, that's not going to happen. And, uh, but I want to be me. Well, get out. That, that's the problem, isn't it? I want to be the little me. Uh, I saw someone sent me a... I saw it on the internet, I guess. Someone had put a, put a cartoon up that was taken from the Wall Street Journal, and it showed the caricature of the yogi on top of a, a small mountain, a reclusive yogi sitting there, and uh, at his feet, was, there was a man who obviously just climbed up the mountain, he had still had his backpack on, and he was going to the wise yogis to get his, to get his input, and he said to him, I don't want absolute knowledge, I just want enough to get by. <laughs> so many people are like that when they meditate. I don't want tra- transcendental realization, I just want to be a little bit blissful, and a little more comfortable, a little more peaceful. And that's all right. Be more peaceful, be more comfortable, experience a degree of blissfulness or joyousness, that's all right. But then you don't stop there. That's what yogis recommend, at least. Don't stop there. Aspire to go to the fullest extent possible, to wake up completely. And there can be those occasions of experience of transcendence. And when they occur, then you experience that they are very familiar. And uh, they're not uh, unsettling or frightening at all. But you feel like you're home. But uh, you can't stay there forever because you come out of out of their, your superconscious state somewhat, transcendent state anyway, and back to ordinary awareness, hopefully more illumined and more uh, more understanding uh, and more functional. But uh, if you calm the mind and emotions and clarify awareness, then there's a possibility of experiencing these transcendent uh, states of consciousness. And they can't be explained uh, adequately with words because they're non-conceptual. You can't 
uh, you get to the, you're talking about transcendence beyond ca- characteristics and attributes, it's indefinable with, with, with concepts. So you can hint at what it is, but you can't really fully describe it. And in some of the Upanishads, some of the old writings from India, uh, one approach was to, to get to what it is, is to negate everything that it is not. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. Well, what's left is what is. But uh, that's sort of a process of discernment. But uh, so Kriya Yoga, the term sounds rather exotic, but all it, all it is is uh, right thinking and right living and uh, right, medita- right, right contemplation of, of uh, ultimate reality, correct contemplation of our true nature. So if we don't use Sanskrit words, you use plain English, then it's just common sense. And uh, the procedures are suitable for everyone. That's why they're called universal procedures or principles. And they don't belong to any religious tradition or any cultural uh, situation. They, they're just universal. And uh, so the guidelines for practice are, one, or ethical living, and truthfulness, honesty, um, harmlessness, uh, freedom from uh, from um, greed or possessiveness, and uh, non-dissipation of your vital forces, right use of your vital forces and mental capacities, and then cultivation of of uh, inner calmness and peacefulness in all situations. So we don't have to be fully spiritually enlightened to live right. We know how to live. You know, we, we, uh, by now, you know, there's a lot of information about the usefulness of a wholesome diet, rest, exercise, positive mental attitude, uh, meditation, uh, wise management of resources. I mean, we, most of this is just common sense once you get a handle on it. So we don't have to be spiritually enlightened to live right. Uh, or to live constructively, all we have to do is learn how to do it and do it. And you say, well, I'm not spiritually enlightened yet. Well, that'll come along. But in the meantime, you're going to be living much more efficiently than you were. You're going to be healthier, happier, more successful in what you do, and so on. So um, it's also well to know the aims of life that that ought to be fulfilled uh, so that we can be completely fulfilled. One, we ought to know what our purpose in life is. Our purpose, ultimate purpose is to be self-realized. But while we're here, we also have things to do. So we can examine our knowledge, our skills, um, what we have to work with, and how we can best apply that to living. Uh, in in the highest and best way, not just getting by, but in the highest and best way. Strive for excellence in performance of activities and in experience. So that's called fulfilling fulfilling our our personal purpose in life. And uh, according to our temperament and capacities and so forth. And then, too, we ought to be able to 
uh, have all of our life-enhancing desires and needs easily fulfilled. Your life should not be an endless struggle, putting up with the challenge and difficulties, and just getting by, making do, uh, and so on. We should be able to attract, produce and attract, uh, whatever it is we need or want to live pr- productively, successfully, effectively. And once we can do that, then that's, that's a big plus. And we should have adequate resources to enable us to be secure and free, free to express and uh, so that we, so there, we, we don't have limitations. And then, fourth is we, we, we want to be self-realized. I know some people say, gee, if I had the first three going for me, I might not want to be self-realized. Yeah, but uh, you would, because your, your innate urge to be spiritually awake would, would eventually become compelling. One of my brother disciples, whose picture's on the wall over there, Dr. Uh, James Lynn, he was Yogananda's successor as president of Self-Realization Fellowship, uh, for three years after Yogananda passed. But uh, he met Yogananda when Yogananda was lecturing in Kansas City in 1931, as I think it was. And by that time, Mr. Mr. Lin was born about the same year Yogananda was, about 1893, within a year or so. So when he met Yogananda, he would have been almost 40 years of age. So by that time, he already had two or three million dollars accumulated, and uh, he uh, was in the eyes of others and himself quite successful and as a businessman and executive in Kansas City. He owned two insurance companies and, and he was invested in other projects. But he said that, that until he met um, Yogananda, he, w- he was not completely happy and he was nervous all the time, fidgety, fit, literally fidgety. And uh, after he met Yogananda, he learned how to eat right and think right and practice yoga and meditate, and and his life changed as far as the inner life changed. He still continued to be very successful in business because he enjoyed business and he was good at it, but uh, he was really a yogi. And he spent early morning hours and evening hours in deep meditation and when he could get away from business in Kansas City, he went to California to one of the Sorvalization Fellowship retreats just north of San Diego and spent two or three weeks there, mostly in seclusion, and going for walks and swimming in the ocean and meditating. And sometimes if Yogananda was in residence, he would meditate three, four, five, six hours together at a time. So he he was a combination of Western, what Yogananda referred to as Western practicality and Eastern spirituality, although spirituality doesn't have to be confined to the East, but uh, a lot of the traditions of, uh, not Enlightenment traditions have had their origins in the East, only because, so-called East, uh, only because culture was more developed there a long time ago before before in Europe and uh, certainly in America. But uh, 
so we can live an active life, a purposeful life, and still be self-realized. But if you know what your purpose, why, why you are here, what you're here to do, and get on with it, uh, this is important to do. But set aside time for reflection. Set aside time for reading spiritual literature, uh, learning about higher realities, philosophical ideas, uh, how to meditate effectively, and, uh, and then do it and apply. Apply, the, apply what you learn. That's the important thing, is to apply, to apply what we learn to live it. And uh, thankfully, we don't have to be outwardly pious. No one has to know of our inward, our inward uh, preoccupation with spirituality. In fact, it's better that way, not to draw attention to ourselves and uh, just quietly live our lives effectively and meditate deeply and experience progressive spiritual awakening. And it will naturally occur in the course of time. The important thing is to stay with it in the right way uh, for the long haul. And uh, when we first start out, we learn about metaphysics and yoga and, and higher realities and, and uh, healthy lifestyle. We may have the super enthusiasm and and uh, we want to know we don't want to know everything there is to know right away. We want to be highly realized in a few weeks, <laughs> and so forth. But it doesn't happen that way for most people. There may be occasions of instant enlightenment, but uh, for most people, it takes time. And uh, so we have to settle in for the long haul. And and when we're on the right track, resolve to stay with it. Uh, faithfully and uh, with confidence and without uh, undue concern for the for the results. I was one time visiting Master Paramahansa Yogananda at his desert retreat in the, near 29 Palms, California, where he went to live for the last three years of his earth life. He spent most of the time there. Occasionally went back to Los Angeles for special functions special purposes, but mostly was out there. And so he could complete his writing of his, uh, that he had outlined for himself. And uh, we're talking quietly one evening, and he, and uh, this is just a, well, a few months after I had met him. So I was, had, we had this initial enthusiasm, and, and then uh, I got in, I wasn't depressed, but I'd gotten to the place where I realized after six months I wasn't going to be enlightened overnight and that I was going to have to hang in there. And uh, he said to me, I didn't mention this to him, but he, he said, uh, Roy, you have to want God. That's how I put it, meaning spiritual realization. You have to want God with all your heart, with such intensity that you can't wait another day to have that realization. But you have to be patient just in case it doesn't happen that day. So you have the intensity uh, and, and intention, intensiveness, I guess that's it, in, rather than intensity, intensiveness, of focus, 
and concentration and resolve, but you also have the inner calmness and emotional stability. Just wait and see what happens. So you don't want to give up, but on the other hand, you don't want to become despondent. You want to stay even-minded, emotionally emotionally stable and forward-looking. And in high school, when I began to read books, which I borrowed from the county library uh, about world religions and uh, read about Buddhism and, and other uh, religious traditions, and when I read about uh, the idea of enlightenment, uh, I thought, I, I can be like that. I will be like that. I didn't think, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful, but I couldn't do that. Uh, no, I, I responded to it. I recognized it as a possibility. And uh, so consequently, uh, all of my early life, I was highly resolved. And uh, I purposely did not talk about my spiritual aspirations with anyone. And uh, even when I was at the Self-Resession Fellowship, I didn't talk with the other fellows about my spiritual aspirations. I didn't discuss my inner experiences. And in fact, Yogananda sent me after about three or four, about five weeks, I guess, five or six weeks after I met him, he sent me over to Arizona to help out with the branch SRF center, so I didn't, I wasn't at headquarters. I went over to see him every two months, wherever he was, and spent time with him, but I didn't interact with the other fellow except to say hello. But I never sat and talked with him, and never discussed philosophy, I never asked, how are your meditations coming, or discussed my inner condition, never did. So one of the great blessings, I occasionally say this because it's true, one of the great blessings that Paramahansa Yogananda uh, conferred on me was he sent me to Phoenix. Uh, there was another, one other fellow over there, senior minister, two years my, older than me, who was a good role model and quiet and uh, paid attention to his duties, and we didn't hang around and talk. And uh, it was a great blessing because I, had, I was like a Trappist monk. I had that private time all to myself, had my duty, my work assignment, plenty of time to meditate and reflect and be still. So for about four years, I had that secluded environment. and It was wonderful. I recommend that for everyone if they can fit it into their life schedule. It happened to me when I was 18 to 20, 21, but uh, 22, but anyway... Uh, it, 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 it was very, very useful for me at that stage in my life. It was very grounding. See, I grew up on a farm in Ohio. You all know the story, I'm sure, so I won't bore you with it. Growing on a farm, and uh, farm life was a good life, but uh, from my middle teens, I had the spiritual aspiration to be self, self-realized. And... Uh, I began to read widely, and then when I was in 10th grade, I read two books, uh, which happened to, in which the subject of yoga happened to be mentioned. I didn't know that when I got them in the library. And when I read about yoga philosophy, I thought, wow, this is a very practical approach. You don't have to believe anything, just do it. 
and uh, see what happens. And I read Yogananda's book when I was in the senior in high school. I saw it advertised in a health magazine because I was into into health and wellness and bodybuilding and so forth at that stage of my life. And in one of the health magazines, there was an ad for Yogananda's book, and I saw it and ordered it by mail. And when I read it, I, I thought, this is my connection. I no doubt about it. I didn't have to be sold on it or talked into it. I knew that was my connection. So later that year, I went to California, and I met Master, and he accepted me for discipleship training, and I entered into the program. And, and he told me about a year later, we were out walking one time at his desert retreat site, and he said, uh, uh, well, he prefaced his remarks with the first. He said, see, the year before, uh, I, I'm, well, the year I met him, but earlier that year I had a rheumatic fever. Five months I was in bed, confined to bed. And uh, so the next year I was walking with him at the desert retreat, and he said, just out of the blue, he said, you almost died last year, uh, but your love for God pulled you through. And then uh, he said, you, you, can't, uh, you have a new life now, and you must make the most, make the most of it. Then he said, uh, you came to me this time, meaning this incarnation, you came to me this time to help me with this work. So uh, we had that intimate relationship in that he was very casual in making these comments. It was very interesting to be with him. He would just say, talk to you very intimately, uh, in in this way, no no big official pronouncement or anything, just casual conversation. He would say these things, but what everything he said simply confirmed what I already felt to be true. And he was somebody confirming it, and uh, I didn't ask him for confirmation. But he would, in our course of conversation, he would tell me things that uh, let me know that he knew. Uh, who I was and what what I why I was there and what our relationship was and so forth. So it was it was very uh, revealing, really, and very satisfying to me to have that relationship with him, uh, that that understanding relationship with him. It got to the place when it didn't take long that uh, I was so in tune with his mind and consciousness that I could, I could anticipate what he was going to say uh, in a conversation with a group of people. He'd be talking, and I could anticipate what he was going to say next, how he would answer a question, and so forth. And uh, because I was just sort of tuned, tuned to him, I knew, I knew how his mind worked and what his consciousness was like. And almost invariably, when I visited him before... Uh, he dismissed me and sent me back to Phoenix. He would say, you stay in tune with me because when you're in tune with me, I can help you. And if you're not in tune, it's like having static in the mental radio and it's more difficult to help you. What he meant by attunement was mental and spiritual attunement, harmony, res mutual respect and harmony. And uh, when you have that with someone, you know you don't always have to verbally communicate. There's just that awareness of the other person's consciousness and being. And uh, it's like 
two people in one, in one body or in one, in one unit of consciousness. So I, I had that experience when I was with him. So then, then I would be over in Arizona, 350 miles from Los Angeles, and whenever I thought about it, I, I felt like I was, he was there with me. He wasn't there in his psychic body or anything like that, but I was aware of his consciousness or the consciousness that he, that he uh, experienced. So uh, in the Yoga Sutra, this is mentioned also as a way to self-realization, to identify with, emulate the, uh, the consciousness, the mental attitudes and states of consciousness of enlightened people. If you know someone who's enlightened, or if you don't know any person personally, but you know about them, then imagine how would it be to be like that? How, how do they? How do they? How do they look upon life? How do they see the larger reality? What it, what, what is it like to be enlightened? And you have you, you can say, sort of use your imagination. You may not be able to imagine completely what it is to be enlightened, but you can imagine freedom. You can imagine being happy and free and unencumbered and competent. You can imagine that. And by imagining in that way, you prepare your mind and your consciousness and your life to actually experience what you imagine. You become receptive to experiencing that which you imagine, if it is possible to be experienced. You see, the subconscious level of your mind doesn't know the difference between the memory that is the result of imagination and actual experience. It doesn't know the difference. Subconscious mind doesn't, doesn't uh, discern. It simply uh, records impressions of perceptions. So that's why... Uh, athletes, for instance, and successful people in various endeavors. Frequently they will say, oh, I imagine myself succeeding. I see myself doing it. And by golly, they can follow through and do it. Or they, they see themselves having certain experiences or certain situations that would be ideal. And then they can follow through and produce those conditions. Or if they can't follow through, they don't know what to do. They hold on to the idea in their mind and believe that they are worthy of it. And pretty soon life conspires to provide it for them. I'm sure you've all experienced that at times. That you desire to have an experience or a thing or an object or uh, to know something. And you didn't know how you were going to pull it off yourself. But maybe you forgot forgot about it for a while. Then all of a sudden, there it is, right in front of you. Life just says, here it is. And uh, so you attracted it. Or it was there anyway, but you didn't see it before. Well, sometimes you can attract events. Uh, And I'm not recommending that we become sorcerers or manipulators or or metaphysical magicians, but I'm sure you've all experienced, you got, you, from time to time, events have occurred that you've wished that would, would happen, and it just happened. I remember oh, back in the 60s, for some reason, I was, wanted to know about the lives of some of the early metaphysical teachers in America, 
And uh, I was curious about Mary Baker Eddy, Christian, founder of Christian Science. And until, up until then, about everything published was authorized by the headquarters church in Boston, so it was all polished and glossy, and it was only the image projected that they, that they wanted to project. I wanted to know what kind of a person she was in real life. It turned out she was a very interesting person, and neurotic, and a mixture of conflicts and stuff, and in, insights and executive ability, just a mixture of stuff. But uh, I wanted to know the inner story, behind the scenes stuff. So I heard that there, that uh, uh, that um, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, he wrote under the pseudonym of Mark Twain. Uh, years before, wrote a book on Christian Science, and I thought, well, Mark Twain was a was a um, incisive person and an outspoken, critical person. And if he he would have dug up some interesting information, and so I thought, well, I try to find that book. I couldn't find it. It wasn't in print anywhere. It wasn't available in the place I looked. But I thought, well, I'll attract it. I'll attract it. It'll it'll come into my hands sooner or later, and better sooner than later. And a few weeks later, I happened to be in Dayton, Ohio, to talk for the Religious Science Church downtown. I stayed at a hotel near the church, and one morning I went out for a walk just to get some exercise, and I walked by this used bookstore. And to this day, when I see a bookstore I've never been in before, I usually pop in and see what's happening. And uh, so I went into the store about 10 o'clock in the morning. They had just opened. And the fellow came out, and he said, from the back room, and I asked him, if he had that book by Mark, Mark Twain. He said, no. And he said, even if I did, he said, as, as, as I recall, it's uh, the last time it was published, it was one of a, one, of, one, of a, one book in a set, a match set. So I couldn't sell you the individual book. I had to sell you the whole set. And, uh, but he said, just feel free to browse. So I looked around. And in about 10 minutes, he came back, came back in from the back room, and he said, I just was opening some books this morning from an estate. They wanted to, they wanted to, uh, I bought the, book, the books from, the, from the, the family of a deceased person, and uh, I was just going through them, and there's only one book from Mark Twain, and it's his book on Christian science. So it was three, $3 or so. So I, I got it. So I thought, well, okay, the universe is very helpful. I had to go to Dayton, Ohio, to walk into a used bookstore and have the fellow dig it out of a box that had just arrived. But <laughs> I got it. So things like that can happen. Uh, we can be responsible for producing our own results. And I think we should use our executive abilities but what we can't do ourselves, if it's worth having or doing, we can see ourselves having or doing. And the universe can be supportive of us. One of the basic teachings in the modern metaphysical movement in, in, here in America that started to blossom around the middle 1800s, uh, first uh, the influence emerged from, from the writings of uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and his colleagues, 
but uh, who also read the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads. They didn't tell me that in high school. I found that out later. Uh, those, those, that literature had just at that time recently been translated into English, and they got their hands on it and were attracted to, to it. But then, 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 of course, there was Christian science, and there was Unity, School of Practical Christianity, founded by the Fillmores in the 1800s. And later in the early 1900s, Ernest Holmes established the Religious Science or Science of Mind movement. And of course, then the yogis started coming to town. Vivekananda came in 90, 1893, and then a few others came up, come on the scene. Didn't make big public waves, but they were here. And Yogananda came in 1920 and made a big, big impact. But the early, the early new thoughters are called uh, uh, unity and Christian Science and Science of Mind and so forth. They emphasize that there was one universal mind, of which our minds are units, and that it, it, we can interact with that one mind. Emerson just, as I mentioned, having read the Bhagavad Gita and other literature from India, he wrote in one of his, his essays, or referred to in his essays, uh, to the one mind common to, com- common to us all. There is one universal mind, or mind-thinking principle, and uh, I have to sometimes define it because whenever I use the word mind and I'm talking now, I'm reminded when I first went to Germany to lecture in the late 1970s, the woman who sponsored my talks there in several cities and traveled, traveled with me and the other, others and tra- translated for me, she told me ahead of time that here in Germany we don't have a word for mind. You, you say mind, but we don't know what you mean by mind uh, when, you, when you use the word. So please use the word gebot or thinking principle. So I said, all right, I'll do that. So words are not always interchangeable from one, one language to another. Uh, but uh, we call it mind, that which th- thinks. And uh, man is man is from the Sanskrit word mana, the thinker, that which thinks. Thinking principle. That's where the word man comes from. We're not talking about the gender. We're talking about the species. But um, anyway, there's a thinking principle that a cosmic thinking principle, or, or, that, or some call it a cosmic subconsciousness, that uh, is, is universal, everywhere present. And human minds are, and minds of critters are individualized units of it. That's the metaphysical theory. Therefore, our, our desires, our awareness of needs or wants, uh, our uh, imaginings uh, enter into this universal mind which is inclined to be responsive to it, to us. So that's why you can imagine your way to health, happiness, and success and imagine yourself living the kind of life you ought to live and you want to live, uh, even if you can't get yourself into gear and do it. Uh, with your will, you can imagine 
yourself doing it, and that that is a big plus. See see yourself doing it, and uh, athletes do that. Basketball players and golfers and baseball players and track stars and high jumpers. You know, they often they will say, "Oh yeah, I see myself doing it," and uh, my body just follows through and just. It's effortless when they're in the flow, when they're in the zone, they call it. It's just effortless. It just just happens. So um, use your imagination creatively. Creative imagination is is uh, intentional, controlled. Uncontrolled imagination can be fantasy, and there's time for a little bit of fantasy now and then if you're sort of daydreaming and speculating and thinking about possibilities, that's all right to fantasize a little bit. How would it be if? But you don't want to walk around in fantasy and make-believe world all the time. That's not being healthy-minded. But, uh, and of course, we don't want to believe what is not true. Many people, you know, in the realm of religion and philosophy and so forth, they have these beliefs that are not true, and they hold on to them. Well, I was taught this when I was a kid, or my family believed this way, and it's hard to get it out of my head, and so forth, you know. People tell me that sometimes, you know, they say, well, I grew up in a fundamentalist church, or I grew up in this religious influence, and I got these ideas in my head about what God is and what my relation, what, what God wants of me, and uh, I, know, I know better intellectually, but it's still there in the subconscious. And every time I start thinking about these things, these memories come up with these feelings and these moods associated with them. And it clouds my mind. It causes confusion. So I, don't, I, I, I think I know what to believe, but I find it difficult to believe. And uh, so forth. But uh, so it's helpful uh, my experience, at least, is helpful. As soon as possible, arrive at a clear understanding, or a rational understanding of what this ultimate reality is. Uh, that it is not; it is impersonal, and it is not a person. It is formless, and yet it is a presence, and it is it, it, it is a reality. It exists. And it is knowable. But uh, some people say, well, no, I like my God to be a person. A big father, father idea. The Lord in heaven. Some say, oh, I, like to, I prefer a dying mother. Because mothers are nicer than fathers. They aren't quite as t- tough on you. They aren't as disciplined, or disciplined as, as fathers are. But uh, God isn't a father, and God isn't a mother, and God doesn't have a will or, or doesn't have druthers or desires. It's, it's not that way at all. But uh, to try to understand that there is an ultimate reality with these two aspects, absolute or transcendent, and the aspect with characteristics which can produce and does produce universes. And then see yourself, intellectually at least, maybe intuitively, as a unit of the pure essence of that ultimate reality. Therefore, you are immortal. You are as immortal as it is, timeless, changeless, uh, as it is. 
And then, so the ultimate experience, according to many, many mystics, uh, of course, yogis use uh, yogis uh, um, use language differently than some Christian mystics or mystics of other cultures. But they're all talking about pretty much just the same thing, and they're trying to describe enlightenment. And uh, in Sanskrit, the yogis refer to it as sat chetananda, sat existence, chet conscious consciousness, and uh, ananda as joyousness of of uh, realization of being. So it is it is conscious, joyous, eternal uh, existence. Uh, we read the word, use the word. Uh, we see the word Ananda used a lot in in yogic literature, and uh, and and defined as bliss. But it doesn't mean emotion. Uh, it means sheer exhilaration of realization of of, of our essence. It's not just sitting there and say, "Oh, I feel so good." Uh, it's uh, it's not that it's a superior, superior, more transcendent uh, uh, experience, realization. But uh, so it's useful not to get, not not to be not to settle in at any stage of uh, med- meditative experience. Uh, uh, this side of transcendence. Um, Master told me about this one time. He said, don't, he said, some saints uh, enjoy, uh, are satisfied to enjoy the bliss of God communion, a sense of communion with the larger reality, and they don't aspire to go beyond that stage. Then he said, but you have to go all the way. But uh, that means you have to wake up completely. So you can meditate and feel very peaceful, and that's wonderful. Even blissful or joyous, and that's that's useful. Or you can have stages of clarity, of extreme clarity of awareness, and that's useful. But the thing is, we don't want to settle at any of these at any of these places and say, I've got, "Now I've got it." This is, this is all I need. I'm there. And then each, every time we sit, work to get into that state of blissfulness or joyousness or clarity of awareness up to a certain stage and then just hang out there. That is beneficial because it'll, it'll, it'll produce side benefits, a stronger immune system and slow your biological aging processes and provide you peace of mind and emotional stability. And that's all useful, but it's not the ultimate realization. So whatever experience you have, it's useful to inquire, is there anything beyond this? Is there anything more? And be open to the possibility of discovery. And eventually you'll get to the stage where there isn't anything more, and you'll know that when you are there, you'll you'll know it. But then you you will be fully awake, fully spiritually enlightened. Before that, you're not not fully awake. So the idea is to be fully spiritually enlightened, 
and to the stage of what is called liberation of consciousness. And what this means is that your your awareness, consciousness, is doesn't have any doesn't have any um, dark spots or any delusions, no uh, erroneous ideas or opinions, and no misperceptions. Whatever you observe, you you perceive it with accuracy. Because if you observe without perceiving with accuracy, then if you think you've got it when you haven't got it, then you have an illusion, a mistaken perception. And then you may have an erroneous belief or an opinion. And uh, so so to be liberated, to have a consciousness that's liberated is to have a consciousness that's absolutely pure, and no, del- no delusions or uh, flawed uh, beliefs or opinions or misperceptions. And uh, no, n- not even any troublesome subconscious influences. No residue from the past of memories or impulses that are still anchored in your subconscious that now and then become activated and cause you discontent or trouble of some kind or feeling of feeling of being, having been traumatized or or uh, abused or uh, not appreciated or whatever you don't have any of that anymore it's all washed out it's all 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 gone as they used to say when I was growing up in the fundamentalist church your sins sins are washed whiter than snow you're just you're all cleaned up and it's all your consciousness is all cleaned up. And that's what it means to be enlightened, fully enlightened, illumined by the radiance of your being. And they, that, that radiance doesn't come from the outside, it comes from within you because you are it. You are a unit of the, of the supreme it or itness. So therefore everything is within you. That's, what, that, that's the basic teaching too, isn't it? It's all inside. Now look outside, have some confirmation, or some want some input, but eventually realize it's all inside. And uh, that's, that's why the awakening to self-realization is really a process or processes of self-revelation. A, a coming forth. Uh, and uh, an observation of that which was previously unknown, but it was there all the time. It was concealed, uh, not concealed by something by something that didn't want you to know, but concealed because you weren't able to see it. So just, but it's there, and then you realize you realize what it is. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.